Welcome to The Lead, a podcast where we learn how to get ahead in the media industry from the people who did it. I'm Noelle Lashley. On today's episode of The Lead, I talk to Atlanta Journal-Constitution political reporter Greg Bluestein. Bluestein covers the Georgia governor's office and state capitol, as well as federal politics. Before joining the AJC in 2012, he spent seven years as a legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Bureau of the Associated Press. His work has ranged from covering state elections and Atlanta infrastructure to traveling across the country to follow the 2016 presidential campaign trail. In this episode, we talk about covering politics in a hyperpartisan climate, the challenges presented by fake news, and how the digital world is changing the way stories are told. Thank you so much for meeting with me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Looking at the mic. Uh, just look at me. It's fine. <laughs> we'll make it work. So today's your test for, you usually do the interviewing, now you're going to be interviewed. Exactly. So, and you're here for the Georgia Press Association, right? yes. Uh, we were just speaking with uh, a bunch of students, uh, well, a, a lot of journalists, some who work for student publications, some who work for professional publications, uh, about journalism in the state of, uh, in the era of Trump. An interesting time. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it's been very interesting for me as a reporter. Last year, I was all around the nation covering uh, the presidential campaign. I went to New Hampshire and Nevada and Iowa and Wisconsin and South Carolina, North Carolina. And this year, a lot of the reporting was right on our doorstep because we had the 6th District Congressional Race, which was the most expensive House race in the U.S. history. We've had uh, the beginnings of a very interesting governor race as well um, and, and race for a bunch of statewide offices. And Trump is coloring all of those races. Yeah, I've been following your reporting that you've been doing for the state of Georgia, and it's all over the place. I've never seen, and the people I'm talking to who have been around for longer than I have have also not seen it quite like this before. Yeah, um, it's a very volatile atmosphere. Um, Republicans aren't quite sure what to expect uh, in, in their races. I mean, if you look at what happened um, just recently uh, with the Alabama Senate race, where Roy Moore beat the, you know, the establishment favorite, uh, that's likely going to embolden a lot of other, uh, you know, uh, Republican grassroots challengers to challenge incumbents, even if even incumbents who seem in, unbeatable. In Georgia, we've we've managed to um, kind of hold off that. You have you haven't seen a huge. You saw a Tea Party revolt, but it wasn't huge. Most of the Tea Party candidates really didn't gain that much traction, and Johnny Isaacson easily, easily won a third term as U.S. Senator. Um, so it's, it remains to be seen how that that plays out in Georgia, but I'm sure there will be a lot more uh, challengers from the right flank uh, in, in state races as well as in federal races. And that was a big part of what you were talking about today in the Georgia Press Association, right, was covering divided communities? Yeah, and, and sort of best practices um, into covering it. And I mean, any reporter has to be able to talk to both sides of the issue, has to be a, seen as a credible and, and trusted uh, reporter who can talk to Democrats, Republicans, independents, everyone in between on, on these issues, or else you have your job for too much longer. Um, and so I talked about how even when you're writing stories that are that are tougher and, 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 and harder on, on the candidates, how... Um, you always make an effort to reach out to them. Um, I have a sort of a no surprises policy I try to stick to unless I'm burned, where I let I let you know everyone know, hey, this story's coming. You know, you're not going to like it, but it's coming. Um, and 
basically how I try to talk to as many people as I can. Uh, and it makes for some long days, but um, I try to talk to 20, 20, 30 people on a given day, and which is nothing compared to what some Maggie Haberman of the New York Times says, 50-plus people a day she talks to. So that's kind of the, the gold standard and one that I don't know how I'd ever reach. <laughs> right. That's amazing. Sometimes as a student trying to think of even trying to get one or two in a day. Yeah, but imagine it being your entire job. I mean, I, I was a Red, I was the Red and Black editor and a reporter for the Red and Black for a long time, and I used to think the same thing. I have to cram in stories in between classes. Um, my, my days at the Red and Black were much longer than my days here. My first few years after I graduated, it seemed like a, a vacation almost because I only had, you know, a 9-to-5 job. I didn't go to class from 10 to 3, then do homework for a couple hours, then work for the Red and Black, and then do more work, and then go out with my friends, you know, and come back at 2 a.m. in the morning, like like you do for a lot of weekdays in, in Athens. Um, and so, you know, you had 80-hour, 90-hour weeks of just trying to get your schoolwork and red and black work and, and homework done. When you suddenly go from that to 40 hours a week, it was like a, it was like sort of a vacation for a little bit. But it quickly, um, your, your, quick, your schedule quickly fills up with family and other duties. Right. Yeah. It just it changes. It just changes. You, you, you talk about instead of going out uh, every night, you talk about reading your, your kids' books, good night books every night. So, but it's cool that you have the opportunity both to do what you love and then be with your family. Yeah, um, the work-life balance, and there's a few questions in there about it. It's tough. It's tough for any journalist. There's there's fewer of us. There, there's you know our, our newsroom at the AJC is significantly smaller than it was just a few years ago and then local smaller papers I mean and some of these guys went from like 10 staffers to three almost overnight and so there's more pressure on us to do to, to just basically to, to keep doing what we've always been doing plus go do some of the investigative stories that take a lot more time and that's that's a really tough balance to strike luckily at the AJC we have a team of 10 12 investigative reporters and editors who can spend months on the stories um, and that's that's a great luxury to have. Not every other, not every paper has it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, because I googled you and looked up your LinkedIn, and I watch everything that you post. So you have the blog. You have the political blog for AJC. Mm-hmm. How long does it take you to do? Like, what's the difference between a blog and actual just posted article up on AJC's? Yeah. So we website? we kind of see it as having two, maybe even three audiences. We have the we have the blog audience. That is that is really passionate about um, breaking developments in, in, in the political world in Georgia. Um, some quick hit analysis, um, some quick t- some quick takes on national news as it relates to Georgia, um, and and sometimes we use it to to advertise, basically to sh- feature some of our longer form journalism. You know, click here's the first two or three paragraphs. Click here to read the rest. Uh, and then we have that longer form premium journalism uh, that usually is behind our paywall. And those, those are the kind of, that's the bread and butter. Those, those are the longer stories. Those are the investigative stories. Those are the exclusives we have on the biggest races of the day or the biggest topics of the day. Um, that's the accountability journalism. And it is kind of a two-tone track. I mean, in one hand, uh, to, to be a journalist in today's digital world, you've got to, you know, have those short, quick hits on, on the breaking news of the day. Governor said this about the Amazon deal. Uh, candidate for, for lieutenant governor uh, gets an endorsement from Ted Cruz. Um, you know, the mayor's race is heating up, and here's why. You know, this, this candidate flubbed this answer. Th- those types of really quick hit stories, um, they don't really, you know, tell the entire picture. It's not a 
it's not a you know two thousand word opus about the mayor's race, but that we usually try to link to the two thousand word opus on the mayor's race that we write. And then we have those types of projects on the on the other track, and it is hard. It, you you get used to it after a while, but it is hard to kind of go down those parallel tracks at the same time, trying to jump back and forth, back and forth, um, because you've got to kind of feed the beast. I mean, there there is a, a desire for all sorts of exclusive content on the digital side I and mean, there's our, me and my our team of political reporters we, we we pump out something like 20 to 30 pieces a day on average and all across the spectrum of political news in georgia and that's basically with a main force of five or six reporters so there's a lot that's not saying we're all doing five or six stories a day but it, it means there's a lot of stuff for us to cover every single day we're talking a lot in grady about how to reach different people on different platforms and how some more traditional outlets like newspapers are adapting to reach audiences yeah i mean digital first has become a cliche now but it really is how we have to all operate um, it, it wasn't so long ago that you'd have some great, awesome story, even if you thought it was a scoop, and you'd sit on it till till 5.30 in the afternoon and, and punch it out then, or 6 or 7, because you didn't want any competitors to get to it. Uh, but guess what? I mean, the readership is is, is at a lull in some, in, in some news organizations at 5, 6, 7 p.m. at night. Uh, it depends on the news organization. But we've found that some of our best stuff does really well in the morning. So we try, to, we try to pump up what we do in the mornings because that's when people like me are logging on their phones and making sure they have the latest news of the day. Um, you have to reach your audience. We do a lot of podcasting. I haven't gotten into the podcast game yet. Um, Welcome to it. I know. Uh, but uh, our, a lot of our colleagues have. And we have a breakdown co- podcast that Bill Rankin, our legal reporter, pioneered. And I think he's in season five now. And it's just, it's gotten millions of downloads. We've had a few other podcasts in the works. And I'm on a political show um, at least once a week that GPB does that is a podcast. And I'm sure it, it might have just as much audience in the podcast as it does people listening live. It's kind of nuts. We do, uh, I, I was I was really big for a little while in the Snapchat. You know, it's something that I'm 35, so I'm like an edge millennial. But um, my little brother and all his friends would always see me whenever I got picked up by the national Snapchat channel on the on the campaign trail. They're like Greg, you know, and I had Snapchats. They got two million views. You know, far more than anything I've ever written. Right? I mean, you can combine uh, like three months of my work, and it probably isn't two million. Or it might be around two million clicks. But one video I did that got picked up on Snapchat was two million within 20 minutes. So it just shows you, um, you know, how how you how we as journalists need to be reaching out to different audiences, uh, and because we're proud of our work and we don't want it to go unnoticed. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things we're talking about in a class I'm in right now. Um, seniors at UGA take on this multimedia reporting course, mm-hmm. and we have this little unit at the beginning on writing for the web. Yeah. But we're trying to train ourselves for people aren't going to stay the whole time, and they're going to want to jump out and leave, so inverted pyramid, and put yeah. everything important at the beginning. How do you think... That it's like writing get... for mobile, right? Exactly. I mean, that's, yeah. But trying to get people to stay for the whole story, especially, I mean, political writing is very deep, very nuanced. Yeah. A lot of things happening throughout it. How can you encourage people to stay and make them want to stay? It's a good question. The... I think, I mean, th- I think at one level, it, it requires understanding that some people just aren't going to stay. And so th- there, is a, there is a purpose for doing that, that you know, mobile type journalism where it's just here's the four or five graphs you need to know. I mean, that's what that's what Associated Press style kind of kind of is in a way that we were. I used to work for the AP, but we were kind of taught like get the biggest stuff out first. And back then it was pioneered because you never knew when a newspaper would cut your story, right? I mean, the AP wire would go out to 
thousands of newspapers and some newspapers might use the whole thing that some might just cut it halfway through. So you wanted to make sure that if it cut it halfway through, it still got the, the runt of the story. Uh, now it's, you know, perfect for, for mobile journalism. You know, you want to lead with what's happening. Uh, you want to make sure the audience knows as quickly as possible. So you have to understand that some people just are never going to read the whole thing. I have lots of friends that will never, even if, even if they know I spent three months on it, they're just not going to read the whole thing because they're not, they're so ADD. They're not, yeah. they're not conditioned to do it. Um, but then you have to delight the readers. And, and that's what, that's what's, that's what's kind of great about still working for a newspaper um, is that we have the opportunity to delight readers sometimes. We have a, we have a weekly section called personal journey and reporters who do it, I've only done a few of them, but reporters who do it spend months, sometimes even a year on these stories, and you know when you're getting into one, it's going to be a long read, but you also know it's going to be worth it. And, um, and, and, and I think you have to condition readers that it's not, you know, the format for stories like that is different. It looks different on, on the phone. It looks different in the newspaper print. It looks different on the desktop. And it sends a signal that this is going to be something worth your time. We have no idea where people are reading it. Some might be reading their desks. Some might be, hopefully they're not reading their cars. Um, but it's, it's, it's sort of a, like a subliminal signal that these types of stories are the ones we really want you to try to finish if you possibly can. And now we have metrics that show this, right? I mean, like the modern day newsroom can see not only how many people are clicking on stories, but how long they're staying on, what else they're clicking on, um, you know, what stories they're clicking on next. Uh, you know, how they got to that page. You know, we get a tremendous, this is no news, but this is, we get a tremendous amount of, uh, of audience from Twitter and Facebook, a, a huge chunk from Facebook, and less and less and less from the homepage because people aren't going to the homepage as much. They're finding us through alternative means, which is perfectly fine. We just have to take advantage of it. Right, because you'll have Twitter moments and then Facebook instant articles, and they just pull in a ton of people. Yep, and there's entire publication and distribution strategies that are entirely built on spending a lot of money on Facebook. Um, and getting and making sure that you know Facebook, you get tens of thousands of fans in your first week of launching some new product, and that you know they'll continue to see your stuff over and over again, and, and hopefully click on some of them. Yeah, and we were talking a lot about the whole fake news problem, yeah. especially around politics. Yeah, and then a lot of people are tailoring their news and their articles to support what they think and what they want to be true. What do you, are you encountering that with AJC? Like are people? Yeah, I mean the scary thing was fake news used to be actually fake news. Like last year around this time, fake news was like made up news about mostly about Hillary Clinton because um, the New York Times, or I think it was some, some, some publication, this great story, they, they went to the town of the country of Georgia and tracked down people who were making these fake news. And, and the guy was very uh, open to it. He was very frank, he said, uh, yeah, we tried to make fake news about Trump, but it just didn't really give them attraction. But then we do news about how Hillary Clinton is 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 stealing votes and, and is throwing away Trump votes, and it just went nuts. And so a lot of the fake news was actually fake news. The, the, what worries me is that now it's becoming news that politicians just don't like, right? It's If a story is negative about you, it's fake news. And I even hear friends, uh, conservatives and liberals joke about, it. oh, it's fake news, and it kind of gets me because I'm like, come on, you know. You're, you're buying into this. Uh, there is a scourge of fake news, and it is, it is changing towns. I mean, you, 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 can, you can see the impact that, that, that fake news stories about, about real crimes are having in small towns and small communities. Um, you also, I mean, having worked in journalism for 15 years, you also see how people try to perpetrate hoaxes on you, not just for April Fool's Day, but I've gotten fake press releases before and, and fake notifications about deaths and things like that. People just try to pull a fast one on you. 
And it makes, and in today's environment, when you're running around trying to do five or six different stories in, in one day sometimes, uh, especially at smaller newspapers where the resources are even more strained, uh, you know, it's, 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 I can see how people can get caught in that trap sometimes. They see something that looks like an official press release about something major happening. And I'll say one story in the middle of the Sixth District campaign. It was April Fools, and so I knew better, and I didn't get caught by it. But but there was a there was a, uh, a, a Republican candidate for, for for Congress named Bob Gray. His campaign sent out a press release saying that the front runner Republican Karen Handel, who ended up winning the race, was dropping out and endorsing him. And there was an official press release, and it wasn't even tongue in cheek. It was a straight up official press release um, with audio of Karen Handel saying she endorsed Bob Gray. Well, the audio was from a robocall she did years before for his city council race. And I told them how I felt. I said, come on, guys, this is the worst of the worst. Someone is going to uh, fall for it, and they will write a story saying Karen Handel dropped out of the race. And I had to write a story saying it was a hoax. You know, I didn't, get, I didn't fall for it, obviously, um, but I had to write a story just because I knew someone else might actually buy it and believe it. And it was a very big, nationally watched race. So you see that even from legitimate campaigns who who try to take advantage of that, um, and it is you know it's a little bit it's a little bit scary. Yeah, because something I've noticed is people saying that even news outlets like CNN are producing fake news, and you can't trust them. And CNN is one of the yeah. large. Have you experienced that with AJC? Have people said? Oh, you, you can't trust this, even if it's from this established news organization. Oh yeah, I mean readers. I mean you know readers have have long, uh, you know local residents have long you know uh, had their issues with the with with the AJC's coverage here and there. Um, I'm fortunate that I haven't heard many politicians and, and, and sources and, and business leaders and things like that say that. I mean, there's certainly things we don't like that they don't that we write that they don't like, and that's our job. I mean, our job is right. not to mollify them. Our job is to write what's happening. Um, but it does worry me when I do hear, you know, national figures say that a CNN story they don't like is fake news just because they don't like it. And the same thing happens on the other side of the aisle. You know, not 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 everything Fox News does is biased and 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 you know and one-sided. Um, they do legitimate reporting too. And for liberals to say that everything they do is fake news is concerning. And certainly, both stations, along with MSNBC, have have times where they they get opinionated, right? And there's there is an increasing blurry line. In the print media too. I mean, one of the questions I got out there was, is it is it possible to be objective now when when readers seem to like this objective? And, I, and my point was, it better be because we're 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 resting our careers on that hope. You know that like readers can go and find every liberal or conservative viewpoint they want from any range of websites that they want that, that are clearly biased, right? I mean, they they don't make any Breitbart doesn't make any. Uh, appearances to be objective. They, you, you read Breitbart if you want to know what what a segment of the conservative population thinks. Same thing with liberal audiences. But our job is to try to be as objective as you can for our local communities. And and and, it, and, it, and there better still be an audience for it because that's what that's what, that's what our job stakes are. Absolutely. Yeah. So my last question yes. for you is: I have a lot of friends who actually do want to be political reporters yeah. for newspapers. And I looked up your history, and I know that you were red and black, and you were AP, and now you are where you are now. Mm -hmm. But what advice would you have for them coming into the field now on how to <clears throat> get to that level? Yeah, I mean, I'd say 
get involved, throw yourself into, into the coverage. I mean, it's the same advice I'd give to a young political operative who wants to run a campaign one day. It's get involved. And, and for a young journalist, that means writing for the student newspaper. I was really excited out there that when a question was asked, and there was maybe we're, we're, we're outside a room of maybe 70 people, and um, the speaker who spoke after me asked uh, people to raise their hand if they were a student, and about half the room's hands went up, and if they were a professional journalist, about the other half raised your hands. And then he asked the students, is there anyone who's a student here who's not working for some sort of publication, blog, media outlet, something? And not a single hand, uh, every single hand went up. Everyone in the, in the room worked for some sort of publication. Uh, I, I, when I was at UGA, there was way too many people who were graduating with newspaper degrees who I had never seen before, and I was editor of the student newspaper for a full year before I graduated. And that scared me, and, I, and, a lot, and most of those people aren't in journalism uh, anymore. And, and, and I don't know if any of them, if, if many of those people even started in journalism. You, you have to get involved in this field early, if only to make sure that you know you like it. It's not an, it's not an easy field, even if you're not covering politics, even if you're covering features, uh, especially if you're covering sports. I mean, those are, those are tough hours, demanding schedules, very competitive beats. So you've got to make sure you, you like it. And the only way you can make sure you like it is by getting involved now, working for the student newspaper, covering a beat, getting the feel for it, and then becoming an expert on local issues. Because as I, as I always say it every time I talk to people, there are so fewer journalists out there than there were even five, ten years ago. I mean, the Georgia Capitol is the perfect example. There used to be dozens of reporters. Now there's only a handful who cover state politics day in and day out. And so there is room for, for, for people to come and say, you know, and, and stake their expertise on health care or transportation or whatever policy uh, that they're passionate about and really make a name for themselves. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Great question, but no, I'm, I'm talked out. <laughs> but it's well, always the best question to ask at the end. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It was fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Lead. This episode was produced by Nate Brammel and Noel Lashley, with special help from Keith Herndon, director of the Cox Institute at the University of Georgia. For more episodes with media leaders, go to soundcloud.com slash the lead podcast or find us on Twitter at the lead podcast.